Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard the term digital divide, but the gap between who has access to the internet and who does not has become even more stark during the pandemic. Coming up where we live, we hear how state and national leaders should approach internet connectivity and affordability. This show aired first in February. Since then, the Biden administration has proposed a multi-trillion dollar plan that includes investing $100 billion to bolster broadband nationwide. Now here in Connecticut, 321,000 Connecticut households, most with low income, do not have wired internet service. That's about one quarter of our state. Governor Lamont has announced his proposal to make broadband and high-speed internet more widely available. Now, how would you rate your internet service where you live? You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest joining on Zoom is John Horrigan, Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute, and he's the author of a report last September that looked at Connecticut's digital divide during the pandemic. This was commissioned by the Dalio Education. So, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, we know that when we think about connecting to the Internet, we do it in a variety of ways, uh, by our smartphone, maybe on a Wi-Fi network, uh, people who use their Ethernet cable. But when we talk about wireline broadband, what do you mean? For that, we mean a service that you subscribe to at home that is either a cable modem service, a digital subscriber line service, which telephone companies tend to offer, or fiber optic cable. Those kinds of service plans are typically uncapped, or if there are data caps, they're very high data caps, which means people can use their internet connection uh, pretty much in an unconstrained fashion for education, for telehealth visits, uh, for Zoom meetings, and and that sort of thing. Um, Smartphones are wonderful. We all have them and use them and love them, but they tend to come with data caps on a monthly basis. And so if you're relying only on that for internet access, you usually don't have enough data to do things like conduct Zoom meetings on the internet or log on for school. So before the pandemic, was the belief that broadband for many people was more of a luxury? And now that we've been in this pandemic for months, we're seeing it as a necessity, John? That's correct. I think there's been among policymakers a collective smacking of the head on why having internet access at home is important. When the pandemic for shutdowns and schools had to close, I think a lot of policymakers who don't pay attention on a routine basis to tech policy issues thought, well, kids can just go home, log on to school remotely, and everything will work all right for the period of time that we're shut down. That didn't happen because school districts found that in some cases, a half or more of students had a hard time getting online. 
So when we look at the digital divide in Connecticut, again, you did research on what that looks like in our state. Can you talk about the disparities in broadband and who's most affected? There are two groups that are most affected by lack of broadband at home. One is uh, communities of color. The data analyzed in the Connecticut report, which was um, American Community Survey data from the Census Bureau, which is a very detailed survey, found that um, African-American households and Hispanic households were more likely not to have broadband than average. So you mentioned at the top of the show that um, something like 23% of Connecticut residents do not have wireline broadband at home. Those figures are uh, 36% for African-American households, 35% for Hispanic households. Another group that is disconnected at a higher than average rate are older adults. 36% of those 65 and older don't have wireline broadband at home. And kind of connecting the thread for those groups is income. Low-income households have very high rates of disconnectivity and low-income households are more likely, or rather have a disproportionate share of um, Hispanics and African-American households. So it's a story of um, race, but it's also a story of income and poverty in addition to being a story of age. I'm curious, before you looked into this uh, for Dalio Education last fall, have there been other studies about the digital divide and have we seen those numbers change at all in recent years? Most of the studies on the digital divide have been national in scope. Since the pandemic, there have been studies at the state or the city level. I live in Baltimore, Maryland, so I've done work on Baltimore and for the entire state. But in terms of what we see for trends nationally over the past four years, there's been a modest narrowing of the digital divide for wireline access. And nationally, about 70% of households have a wireline broadband connection at home, the number 77% for Connecticut, that national figure of 70% has ticked up by about three percentage points over the past few years. So not much of a change in recent years. What we do see is a rate of increase that's faster for wireless access, which is a phenomenon of people who have a difficult time affording the wireline subscription instead choosing to rely only on their smartphones for internet access because the smartphone is a multi-pronged tool, not just for internet, but for phone as well. We've heard from different communities uh, during this pandemic because of online school, John, where you've had communities giving out hotspots uh, to families also uh, that maybe not have that, that, again, higher wireline connection to their homes. Yes, um, there have been initiatives um, both in Connecticut and nationally along those lines. Um, They've served as useful bridges during the time of the pandemic. When you hear or read about those hotspot plans, an important thing to look at is what's the nature of the service plan. Some, since they're being given out by schools, are set up in such a way so that they can only be used for homework for school purposes, which makes good sense. That doesn't, however, give internet access to the rest of the household and other members of the household may need the internet for uh, working at home, for instance, or for for telehealth visits. So those initiatives have been um, very helpful for school kids. 
they're not an overall approach to permanently bridging the digital divide for the state, however. Christian's calling in. Christian, what's been your experience? Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. We live in a pretty rural area of Connecticut um, in the southeast corner, northeast corner. And the problem we have is that there's no investment in the infrastructure. Um, we currently have a DSL line that comes into the house, and that's our only option. Um, and we're guaranteed a speed of anywhere between zero and 25, I think it is. So zero is acceptable to the company. So if we have no Internet access, we have nothing coming in that's acceptable because that's what they've promised. And they, they're aware of the problem. We've been going over this for years. They're aware of the problem um, in the fact that it needs to be upgraded. But it's such a small group of people, they're not, it's not fiscally responsible for them to upgrade or invest in us, so we just suffer. I've got two eight-year-old girls that, in order to have a meeting, everything has to be shut off in the house. We have to focus all of our energy on their school meetings, and it's, it just makes for a really long day in quarantine and year. <laughs> I feel for you. I feel for you, Christian. And we've heard from uh, many uh, families that have that same experience. I'm glad that Christian brought up the rural part of our state, John, as well as the speed that is needed to get the work done at home, whether it's for your job or for school. Can you talk about that, the, the complications of, of getting the, this service to rural parts of our state? Yeah, the point that Christian raises is a good one. And as he lays out the example, I would think that even the most sort of diehard free market economist would admit that his example is one where government intervention makes sense. The company, as he said, doesn't really have a lot of incentive or doesn't really have a business case for investing in infrastructure for a small number of houses in a not very densely populated area. If they were to do that, they wouldn't have enough subscribers to pay back the capital investment that would be necessary to give adequate speed for Christian's household. So that's where um, government investment comes into play and should be undertaken for areas such as Christian described. I, I, from what I understand, the state of Connecticut is um, considering investments in that regard. And that is also something that the Biden administration has talked about in the context of an infrastructure bill that it's likely to try to get passed. And for residents like Christian, when we think about the internet providers where he lives, uh, there's just one internet provider. And so they're essentially a monopoly, John. There aren't a lot of other options for families. Exactly. There's the possibility for a wireless um, connection for his home. That just depends on whether there's a tower nearby that uh, sends out a wireless signal that's fast enough for um, doing school online. If that were the case, it would still run up against the possibility that such a service plan would be data limited so that there wouldn't be enough data to uh, for Christian's kids to, to go to school. Um, so it does become a knotty problem of the economics of running service in rural areas, which is why uh, some government investment is necessary for those areas. And okay, I should so add very quickly that if the government were to invest in rural areas, Christian would likely get much faster speeds because if you're going to build a new network these days, you're not going to put a slow one and it's actually um, cheaper from a capital investment perspective to 
install a high quality network because high quality networks have lower maintenance costs over time. I'm curious that one of the reasons we're having this show is because Governor Lamont has announced his proposal uh, looking to expand broadband access to the entire state, hoping for universal access by 2022. So what needs to happen uh, to get the state where it needs to be? This Is it too much of a lofty goal when we're thinking about the challenges you just mentioned? Well, it's a problem that has two parts, um, and we've been talking about both of them. Christian touched on the availability of infrastructure in all parts of the state that is of adequate speed to support the applications we need. So that's a network deployment problem. Part of what I've been talking about is a subscription problem. In Connecticut, the report I did a few months ago shows that broadband adoption gaps, which is to say the decision among households on whether to subscribe to service, that gap is most severe in Connecticut's cities. In those cities, there is adequate infrastructure, but people are choosing not to subscribe, uh, primarily because they can't afford it, but also because many of them don't have the digital skills to get very much out of the internet. That would apply in particular to older adults who don't subscribe to the internet. So the solution in urban areas, which is where the bulk of the problem is in uh, the state of Connecticut, is to promote affordable broadband service plans for low-income households, but also invest in the community anchor institutions such as libraries or community organizations to provide the digital skills training and the tech support that uh, new subscribers need. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, my guest, John Horrigan, Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute as we talk about Internet access in our state. Coming up after a short break, we talk to a state representative from New Britain about the governor's proposal for universal broadband access. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on the digital divide and how the pandemic has exacerbated the gaps in our state. One third of low-income residents in Connecticut don't have access to the internet or the right devices to connect, and many also need help with digital skills. My guest on Zoom is John Horrigan, Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. He authored a report last September that looked at Connecticut's digital divide. And joining us now on the phone is State Representative Bobby Sanchez. He represents New Britain, also co-chair of the legislature's education committee representative sanchez welcome to the show good morning thank you for having me on this morning so we know from john's report uh, new britain is among other connecticut cities that nearly four in ten residents don't have wireline broadband Uh, when the pandemic started uh, representative sanchez how did you hear from students in the community about the challenges they had with their internet especially accessing online education um it was definitely a huge um problem Uh, we were getting calls not only from students but of course from their parents um basically saying look we many of these parents didn't have the tools either they they didn't have the laptops or the chromebooks in order for these children to do their work so they didn't have the equipment and they didn't have the connectivity um so it became a huge issue where 
a numerous families, and, and I mean thousands of families here in New Britain, um, did not have access and their children did not get that education for, for weeks, if not months. Um, our local school board, uh, again, uh, tried to distribute as many laptops and Chromebooks that they had um, on hand, and then the ones that were coming in from the state um, through the Dalio Foundation and through the state of Connecticut um, were, start, were started to be distributed throughout the community. And, and then there was that problem with connectivity, and um, our local school board um, did a partnership with Shaler Auto where they set up cars that could connect children with hotspots um, in neighborhoods. And, um, and that, again, would only work for, uh, you know, anywhere between four to five hours a day. Um, and if you had three or four children in the household, it became even more difficult to try to connect. So it, it, was, it was pretty tough, pretty tough here in New Britain. And we're hearing Governor Lamont, uh, his proposal for universal broadband access uh, for the state by September 2022, and that would include allowing Pura, the public utility regulatory authority, to require Internet service providers to provide access to all residents and also changes at Pura to streamline a process to install broadband on utility poles and giving Pura more oversight of consumer complaints about broadband. As co-chair of the Education Committee, what do you think of the governor's proposal? Can the state get there by 2022? Well, I commend the, the governor. Um, this initiative is great. Um, I think that we can get there as long as he um, is able to negotiate that with all the um, Internet um, uh, the services that are out there, um, companies. Um, the, the only issue that I see is affordability. Um, if we don't make this affordable, and at some time, too, the discussion has to come up about how it could be offered to certain households for free. Um, we have, uh, particularly in the district that I serve, um, very, very low-income families. Um, it, it's very difficult for them to be able to pay um, even $5 a month for an Internet service. And I, right now, I think it's Comcast offers one for nine ninety five a month and and we can see that there's still many families that have not connected or have not used internet service because they can't afford it. So I, I think that's um, something that we're going to sit down and talk with the governor and hopefully um, see how what would be the next steps. But I am I'm, I'm excited about this um, initiative that the governor put forward and I'm looking forward to it. And I think that by twenty twenty two we can accomplish that. Um, but again, I, I myself have questions about um, affordability and um, if we can offer this for free for certain in, um, families of low income. John Horrigan, what are we seeing in other states that I'm sure are also dealing with the same problem? How to help uh, residents, especially those in low-income areas, have good access to the Internet and, and devices, but also the fact that they struggle with affordability? Yeah, in other states, we see lawmakers' bully pulpits being brought to bear on the affordability problem by trying to encourage carriers to offer discount offers. Or if, if um, carriers do offer these discounted plans, encouraging them to make the sign-up process easy and re really sell the product hard. I should point out 
that at the federal level, there's a proposal in President Biden's COVID relief package to have a $50 a month um, broadband uh, service subsidy. It's actually been passed into law, I should say. There's a $50 a month subsidy for a period of six months this year, which would subsidize internet service for low-income households. So that would get directly at the affordability problem through that subsidy program. An issue is it's for a limited time period. So while it addresses the affordability problem in the short term, it doesn't really do it over the long term, but it is a start. Uh, Representative Sanchez, again, there are so many things on the legislature's plate, especially because of COVID. Are you concerned that this broadband legislation might get buried? No, I don't think so. I, I think that what we have been seeing, particularly in the Education Committee, is um, all the uh, issues, the uh, inequities in education and um, that came out um, more so with this pandemic. And um, I think that everyone is ready to sit down and to talk about how we can move forward and um, make sure that our students are connected and getting a quality education. And, and we know that internet service is not a luxury anymore. It's something, it's a necessity, and we definitely have to do something about that. And I think that the governor is on, on the right track. Um, my biggest concern, again, is still the affordability piece and, and, and hoping, and I'm glad that there's an initiative out there for um, at least a six months, but uh, again, you know, the long term is a concern. John Horgan, you, with your report, beyond looking at the statistics and who's impacted, you have recommendations for how Connecticut can move forward. Can you walk us through uh, some of them, including partnering with uh, community organizations to tackle that digital skills piece? Um, yeah, some of the recommendations that, that I emphasize, they really fall into three categories, planning, partnerships, and appropriations. So states, and many are undertaking this as we speak, need to begin to do broadband planning to fully understand the size and the nature of the problem. It's not just planning for planning's sake. That kind of planning can bring stakeholders together as a way to build consensus for action and as a way to begin the partnership process for different stakeholders, whether they're government, philanthropy, or community groups to come together to attack the problem. And finally, it's going to take money. We've touched on this uh, several times. It's gonna take some public investment in infrastructure in remote rural areas to address the problem. It's going to take some public investment to uh, fund the training programs at the local level to promote digital skills and tech support. So those are several of the things that Connecticut should consider if they aren't already doing it. When you talk about investment, John, how much money are we, are we talking? I mean, the estimates vary and, and that's why you bring together a planning exercise. I know some people are trying to understand that at the federal level. Um, the general, rule of thumb, in, in my mind at least, is that infrastructure is expensive and easy, while adoption is inexpensive and difficult, which is to say it's possible to understand where adequate infrastructure is not, and then write a check to build it. Um, it's an expensive check to write, however. 
when you're talking about adoption, that affordability problem that Representative Sanchez has talked about, um, it does require resources uh, to defray the cost monthly for households that can't afford it, but it also costs money for those training programs that I mentioned. That tends to be cheaper than infrastructure investment, but it, it still does cost money. Representative Sanchez, earlier we heard John talk about when we think about the disparities, it's also older residents that don't have good uh, quality internet connection. And we've seen that uh, with uh, the sign up with uh, vaccinations and making sure that all elderly residents are able to do so. Uh, a lot of them need help. And so I'm wondering what you've seen in your town or in your city and you know how you hope that will also be addressed beyond uh, just the focus on, on schools and online education. Oh, de- definitely. I've been seeing, I've been and hearing too from seniors about the um, the fact that they can't connect with their um, doctors even for their um, um, health issues that they want to discuss with their doctors. Um, so it, it is definitely a a big issue, and we, you know, it, this initiative goes through, and if we can make this affordable, this is going to help everyone, not just the children in the rural areas or in um in the um. Uh, low-income communities, but it's also going to help the seniors to connect because it's so crucial that they have that access to their doctors and even to the pharmacies if they want to connect with the pharmacy as well to get their medication. So um, I I see this being a huge plus, um, but it is going to cost, um, like John had mentioned, and um, and the fact that we're going to have to have people... um, you know, get some technical um, assistance, that's going to be costly, too. And I'm hoping uh, at the school level that, that um, with, with students that the schools will be able to provide that technical assistance um, if needed uh, moving forward. Representative Bobby Sanchez, again, he represents New Britain, and he's also co-chair of the Legislature's Education Committee. Representative Sanchez, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. And John Horrigan, again, is senior fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. We'll tweet out a link to his report on Connecticut's digital divide. John, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk more about how the Biden administration can address the digital divide and what's happening with the FCC. If you listen to Where We Live, you know we hit on a lot of topics. We talk to a lot of people around our state during our live show five days a week. Please support the conversations you hear with the pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We heard about who is affected by the digital divide in Connecticut and that the governor wants to work on universal access by 2022. But what can the federal government do under the Biden administration to help states achieve that kind of goal? Since the show first aired in February, the Biden administration has proposed a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure plan that includes investing $100 billion to bolster broadband nationwide. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee. She's Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Hi there, Lucy. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. So I think the last time we spoke to you was in the summer, and so there's been uh, many months since. I'm wondering when you look at how states and municipalities have worked to address the digital divide, uh, what have you seen? Any improvements? 
you know, when I think about the digital divide and how we're actually moving forward, I think that we still have a lot of issues to correct. I mean, obviously, these last 11 months have been very interesting because they've been somewhat of a pilot for how we look at, you know, addressing these types of issues. But we still have what I call a variety of post-it notes, Lucy, and no frame. So we really need to think about what is the framing for this so that we can move forward and ensure that we're coming out of this with some solutions that will be scalable and replicable. And that's why I think, you know, the federal government has a role to play in this, but we also need to make sure that the federal government is hearing the needs of cities and states and school districts and other stakeholders who are realizing just how difficult it is to close the digital divide. It has been a fragmented approach, uh, depending on what state someone lives, to see how they're trying to address the digital divide. We just talked about hotspots, and while uh, that is a nice initiative, it doesn't quite do it justice when you've got three kids trying to all do their, their Google Meets, uh, and the uh, parent might be working from home, too, and we see uh, service uh, being an issue, affordability also being another one. So when you uh, recently wrote about how our country needs the tech New Deal. Tell us what you recommend. Yeah, you know, I actually am a, a sociologist and a historian at heart, Lucy. So I was listening to President Biden during a speech and I started thinking about um, the importance of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And if you look at the Oval Office, I think he has a photo of him in his office when he's actually talking. And if you go back to the 30s post the Great Depression, what we actually saw Roosevelt do was to construct this new deal. And he did it as a response, um, in response to what we saw with the stock market crash. But more importantly, he did it to find ways of economic recovery. Now we know under the Build Back Better campaign of President Biden that we're actually going to see a similar approach to how we actually get people back to work, how do we reopen businesses and schools, and what will be the new driver for the type of uh, economic recovery and probably democratic revival. I thought about this thing called a tech new deal <laughs> because what is always apparent when we talk about high-speed broadband access is that it's complementary to other things. Uh, whether it's, you know, the use of the web when scheduling vaccinations or how do we look at technology so that people can get better access to government resources. But it's never technology for technology's sake, Lucy. I always feel that, you know, when we look at the uh, supply and demand of new technological resources, the building of 5G and other wireless services, they're not creating the types of jobs that could be essential, I think, to economic recovery. So I, I wrote and scripted and drafted in, I think, a matter of a couple of hours, <laughs> the Tech New Deal, which I think could be um, a program that if the Biden administration was quite interested in economic recovery, it leverages not just the complementary factors of technology, but it also places it in the middle. We're doing, Lucy, so many things with tech. We're shopping. We're going to doctors. We're learning. We're doing, you know, broadcast media. But yet we're not leveraging the potential of new technology to drive the next state of economic recovery. And that's where I'm trying to push out this proposal. The more we look at a tech new deal, the more we actually have, I think, at our hands, the ability to change the course of where we're going. We can provide livable wage scale jobs for people who actually install fiber. We can ensure that it's a coalition of black, brown, Asian people that are coming to the table for these new jobs. It's just a matter of bringing tech to the forefront of economic revitalization. 
Do you see that happening with uh, a shift in the FCC? Uh, West Hartford resident Jessica Rosenworcel's acting FCC chair. I know uh, you know her well. When we think about some of the changes, the repeal of net neutrality in the last administration, uh, just the initiatives moving forward that might get us closer to what you're proposing, Nicole. You know, there may be some policy areas that I believe um, on the technology slate that are going to make a difference. I mean, you know, yesterday it was net neutrality. It'll probably be tomorrow. We'll still talk about net neutrality. But now we have new issues, right? Platform regulation is one of them. The availability of markets to serve a variety of populations. So sort of this framing of racial equity and antitrust. I think all of these issues are going to matter. But most importantly, I would put out there to the audience, what has been missing, which has been central to what we have experienced in the last few months, is the absence of a coordinated strategy to close the digital divide. This divide that we're dealing with is no longer just about the haves and the have-nots. It's not a binary construction of who's online and who's not, who has a device and who doesn't, who has digital literacy training and who does not. This is a lifeline. It is a lifeblood of American citizens to be connected. I have not seen, Lucy, my mom, for almost a year. She's in New York, which is, you know, the beginning hotspot of this pandemic. And I still haven't seen her because the positivity rates are high. But thank goodness for the internet. <laughs> thank goodness for our ability to FaceTime or to conduct Zooms with, you know, my sisters to be able to check on her care. Thank goodness for our ability to order the right medications online that can be delivered to her home. This is what I consider to be, I think, the pressing technology policy issue of the 21st century. How are we going to ensure ubiquitous, equitable access to all communities? Because it matters. We heard from a couple listeners on Twitter. Kay writes, while Internet is essential and we need legislation to provide that for all families, she's talking about legislation in Connecticut to protect those who already have Internet from price gouging. She writes, yeah. I'm speaking about Xfinity and, and the company's just implemented data caps that will cost families hundreds more per month for using the data they need. Also, someone else tweeted, Nicole, this administration and Congress needs to curb the monopoly that Internet providers have. More options will be better for consumers and more Internet access with less dead zones. So can we talk about that? Yeah, no, I think these are really valid concerns. I mean, they were concerns before the pandemic, and obviously they're going to be concerns after. Um, as part of my book, Lucy, you know this, I, I visited Hartford, Connecticut, to actually see how people were attending to school. I had an opportunity to meet with uh, the then commissioner um, of, or advisory appointee, Ellen Katz, but also Janice Fleming. And, you know, to your point and to the people's point on Twitter, is that we have an imperative to provide digital access. Now, the extent to which that imperative is driven largely by the private sector, I think, has been called into question. And it's important for us to do a couple of things. I mean, first and foremost, we've got to go back and reform universal service. Universal service is essentially the way that we create a social contract as well as fund the social contract of digital access for low-income communities. That provides infrastructure support for places in rural America. It provides affordability programs that John Horgan mentioned when it comes to Lifeline. And it also allows for rural telehealth. Now, there's something that's in common with all of those things that I said with universal service, rural. We know we have a rural problem here in America. The facilities are too high, which is not incentivized private companies to go build the last mile there. But we also know we have an urban problem, just like your call was uh, pointed out. So technically, broadband is an American problem. 
And we know in particular in communities that are disproportionately of color, low income, that we have people who have issues in, in, in some suburban communities where you know families are now compromised by their ability to maintain uh, sustainable employment during this pandemic. So we have to figure out a way to actually reform universal service in this country. And I think to the coolest point, if we're going to engender more uh, competition, we need to think about the role of other technology companies in this ecosystem. Right now, companies like Facebook, Twitter, others that ride off of these networks do not pay into universal service. It is actually resigned to those monopolies that have quickly consolidated into you know two or three companies that are responsible for universal service, which is why our telephone bills get higher and higher or our wireless services bills get higher and higher because of the tax. So with that being the case, I think we need to go back at the federal level and revamp that. And we need to ensure that states and cities have some level of redress to, uh, uh, you know, to these concerns. We cannot go another year where a child is left offline because their mother or father cannot afford broadband or their grandmother. We cannot go another year where people are forced to choose between broadband and bread. We have seen the light. We have seen the sign of the times that being digitally invisible really is a consequence to families who are in need of just basic application to unemployment insurance. They cannot do that without online access. As I would tell Lucy people, the, the, the date of analog or inline services are dead. And so we need to, as a country, retool that and ensure that we're involving not just the federal government or state and municipal uh, elected officials, but civil society groups, mm. teachers, uh, community-based organization leaders, uh, local champions who actually can help us to steer us into the right direction of that framing. We just have a couple of minutes left, Nicole, but I've, I've got to ask with the rollout of 5G, can you talk about what you'll be watching in terms of equity and thinking about how to incentivize building this out in non-wealthy areas as well? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another, Lucy, you always ask that great questions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously 5G is going to be particularly important, not just because you can download a movie faster, but because it will enable our ability to do things like precision medicine or agriculture, the low latency will allow us to be more enterprise-based, which I think people don't realize when it comes to 5G. These remote medical calls that you're having are gonna have the precision for the doctor to actually see any type of um, you know, external uh, tumor or invasion on your body in a way that has the preciseness and clarity of being in the office. So it's important that we look at 5G as a ubiquitous uh, general purpose technology and that we think about those networks that they get to everybody in real time. So I, I, I agree with you. I mean, that young lady from Hartford really believes in closing the homework gap and ensuring digital access. So we need to make sure she stays chair because I think this will be at the forefront of her concerns. Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, again, is Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We're going to tweet out a link to your article about the Tech New Deal. One thing I, I really loved reading about was this idea of a civilian core of tech volunteers. Yeah. Yes, that sounds like something we need, uh, Nicole. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, it's almost like a, a AmeriCorps has worked for many years. We've seen SCORE work, you know, with retired, retired senior professionals. We need a digital service corps because right now the world is digital. And so it's important for us to have the right credentials, the right apprenticeships, and the right uh, community service programs nationally to make sure we're all connected. 
Lucy, I appreciate you. You know, my book is coming out soon, so hopefully you'll have me back. But Definitely. thank you so much for keeping these issues top of mind. Thank you, Nicole. Again, Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We'll be talking more about the digital divide, I'm sure, in the coming months. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, it's Connecticut Public Radio's Winter Membership Drive, Support Where We Live, and all the great programming you hear each day. Here are two of my colleagues to tell